Again, this morning, uh, we're continuing our series on what it means for us to be real, who God made us to be, and we're doing this out of Matthew 23, where Christ is speaking uh, specifically to the Pharisees, and he's uh, saying these words to them. Now, certainly, we, we, we hear these words, and we see these words, and they are incredibly strong, especially because of the repetition of the opening phrase that Christ says to these Pharisees, woe to you, teachers of the law, and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And we certainly can see these as judgment. These are sorts of things that um, Jesus is saying to the, the Pharisees and saying, hey, you folks stink. Um, this isn't good. But we can also see these as instruction that Jesus is cautioning the Pharisees against some behaviors and against some things that they need to, to think about and understand better. And that perhaps in hearing these words, they, like all of us, when we hear words that, that convict us, they move us to be transformed. So don't see these as simply Jesus is dismissing the Pharisees. In fact, we see later in the New Testament that there are Pharisees that are changed. And there are Pharisees that are transformed by the grace of Christ. And so what I'm saying is if there's hope for the Pharisees, there's hope for you too. Because oftentimes we get into that same sort of pharisaical behavior. I know I do. And when I read these words as certainly words of judgment, I should also be hearing them as words of challenge. Be challenged to understand these things differently and live into that difference. This morning's message is focused on Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24, but also uh, turn a couple pages over and you'll see Matthew 25, 31 through 46. We're going to be spending a little bit of time there as well. As we go into God's word together, let's pray for his blessing. Father, may we hear your words of judgment as words of encouragement, words of challenge, words of conviction. May our hearts be open to what you have to say. May we listen well, not to my voice, but to your voice. And when you speak, Lord, may we in submission, as Samuel did say, Lord, speak, for your servant is listening. And then that we not only listen, but then go and live. And go and do. And go be transformed by your power, by the Holy Spirit's presence that continues to make us new. We are constantly, Lord, being recreated. May we listen to that. Hear that in our hearts and in our minds that you are present changing things and we can be open. And not only open, that we can be excited and willing to be changed by you. Father, that this is work that you and you alone can do. We pray you do it today in Christ. Amen. So, February 14 is Valentine's Day, 
And on Valentine's Day, like many of you, I woke up and I know what Valentine's Day is. We know what society and culture instructs us about what Valentine's Day is. It's a time when, according to cultural convention, we are supposed to, to our Valentine, show that we care about them, that we love them, that we, um, yeah, they're important to us, Right? So I woke up on Valentine's Day, February 14th, and uh, I wake up earlier than Kristen does usually. I went downstairs into the garage, into the space of the garage where I hide my stuff. You have those places where you hide your stuff. The stuff that are for gifts, the presents, the things that you don't want others to see until you give it to them. I went to my little place. I'm not going to tell you where it is because Kristen will be in second service. I went to my place. I pulled out the card that I had gotten for Kristen. I pulled out the bracelet that I had purchased her and I uh, pulled out the little box of chocolates that I had for her. And I went inside and my card said something like this. It said, uh, Dear Valentine, today is Valentine's Day and you are special to me. And then you open it up and I said, and it said in in the center of the card, it said this, it said, Because it is a cultural convention for me to tell you that I care about you, I do so here. Hear my words of care for you. Signed, Scott. And then Kristen came down because she was up and she went down, she got some coffee, went over to the Keurig, pressed the button, coffee. I handed her the card and said, here dear, it is Valentine's Day. It is a cultural convention. I am obligated as your Valentine to share this with you. I do so now. And here also, because they are a culturally conventional way of speaking to the love that I have for you, a woman's heart, here's some chocolate. And because it is a bobble that is socially acceptable and a cultural convention for me to show you love and show you I care about you, receive this jewelry. And later on today, as a special surprise, I will go to a local florist and purchase for you flowers because flowers are also a culturally conventional way for me to tell you that I care about you and so I will fulfill that obligation and give you flowers. And I stood there with a smile on my face, having fulfilled my full and complete duty. It did not go well. (laughs) Now, of course, you can imagine that didn't happen. I wouldn't be so foolish. I love Kristen. I don't mean I love Kristen. I mean I love (laughs) Kristen. And if I love Kristen then my love for her governs how I interact with her and give to her and show my love to her. If it's not governed by that love, but instead governed by some sort of obligation, I go down those roads that I just just described, and I can tell you that if that were to happen, our relationship would become much more distant and much less 
loving would be much less relational based on the relationship of love that we have for one another. Hear these words from Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. Or, wait, did I jump on here? You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow camel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we have this passage where we have a group of people that Jesus is showing judgment and condemnation against the Pharisees. And what is it that they are doing? They are living into a relationship with God governed by obligation to the nth degree. In fact, we can even see it in how Jesus talks about what it is that they give unto the kingdom of God. He highlights three things, three spices, mint, dill, and cumin. That second one should be dill. It's not oil, it's dill. Um, Mint, dill, and cumin. Why would he bring these things up? Well, let's talk quickly about what had happened in the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period is simply the period between the end of the writing of the Old Testament as we know it and the beginning of the writing of the New. And we know that at the end of the Old Testament, as we know it is written, that the people of Israel are back in Jerusalem and they are together in Jerusalem again after being exiled. They are returned. And the Pharisees are coming into this context and rising in influence and power in in the nation of Israel. And um, during this time, again, they want to get it right. Because before, when they didn't get God's law right, he ended up judging them and exiling them for their disobedience. So they want to get it right. So during this whole intertestamental period, they're doing all this work, all this discussion, all this dialogue about how to get it right, and things like tithes come up. And so we get these two, these are two Hebrew words or phrases. We don't just get the tithe, the ma'asero, we get the second tithe, ma'aserseni. The second tithe is sort of the, the, the new law that the Pharisees have created during the intertestamental time to get it all right. And what's interesting is if you look back at the Old Testament and you see the directives for tithing, of which there are some, specifically in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy is where the law comes. We hear these things about your uh, flocks in your fields. We hear about grain offerings. We hear about oil. We hear about a couple other things. But we never hear about spices and herbs. Mint, dill, and cumin are all things that come up 
as the Pharisees are discussing the tithe, trying to get it right, and they're entering that in the ma'aser sani, the second tithe. It's not just what you should give as a tithe, your flocks, your oil, your grain offerings, or you would sell a tenth of what you had in order to give gold to the temple. Instead, now, they're saying, wait, that's not enough. That, that, that might make God mad because we're not giving him enough. So we need to get it even more right. Mint, dill, cumin, as well as other things that you have to give one-tenth of. They're splitting the hairs for the purpose of fulfilling their obligation to God. Now, why was the tithe so important to them? Well, if you look back in the text, you see that it's important to God, right? We know the Old Testament law. And in the directives that we receive there in Deuteronomy, we know what, that God commanded his people to bring a tithe to the temple. They were supposed to bring a tithe to the temple. And the purpose of the tithe was to support the Levites, the priests, yes. But it was also a tithe that they would give in order to serve the poor within the nation of Israel. People who were poor, people who were hungry, people who didn't have clothing could come to the temple and receive from the temple out of the tithe that everyone had given. And God cares deeply, we know, about the poor, the naked, the hungry. And so in order to make sure that there was an opportunity to serve the naked, the poor, and the hungry, you had to give a tithe. And that tithe led to work among the poor. But then in Malachi, and I want us just to turn there real quick. We hear these really powerful words about what happens when someone doesn't fulfill the tithe. It's Malachi chapter 3, 8 through 10. It says these words. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? And the answer is, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse. Your whole nation. Because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So in the Old Testament, we get in this prophet Malachi a condemnation because the people of Israel hadn't got it right before. So you can imagine the Pharisees who are reading this prophet are saying, we have to get it right. We're not going to rob God. We're going to make sure we give more. And what we give, we're going to make sure we get that right in our mint, our dill, our cumin, our other spices. Everything that we have, we got to give it. We're going to make sure we do. Our obligation is to give. We will fulfill our obligation. The Pharisees are recognizing something important. That we are called to give back to the Lord what the Lord has given to us. That is true. Absolutely key. Very, very important. 
But the issue is one of the heart. Christ is speaking against the heart that they have. And these words that he uses, and maybe you don't understand it because it seems like a weird phrase. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. How many of you know exactly what that's supposed to mean, right? It's one of those weird things. Well, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, or at the time of Jesus even, during this whole time, you didn't have refrigeration, right? couldn't refrigerate things so you would take your wine or whatever juice that you had and you would put it into a clay pot into a portion of your house and sometimes you could get a good plug to sort of cover that you could get a sheet or you could get some some clay that would turn into a plug and cover the uh, the the top of the pot but it wouldn't always seal perfectly and if it doesn't seal perfectly what happens insects get in so when you hear, uh, when even at like the, the, the wedding at Cana, you can imagine these servants who are pouring out the wine, they got to strain out the wine. Why? Because there might be bugs in it. And certainly we think, oh, that's not healthy. Sure, get the bugs out. But even more important than that, gnats actually have a unique feature. If you drink a gnat as a Jew, what are you? You're unclean. Directives in the Old Testament. You cannot eat insects. So if you drink a gnat, even unknowingly, you're making yourself unclean. And Jesus is saying, you're worried about straining out the gnat, but you are doing something else. You're taking in a camel because your heart isn't right. And the camel is another, what, unclean thing. It has a cleft hoof. And in the Old Testament, a cleft hoof animal was an unclean animal. Camels are unclean. Jesus is saying, you're taking care of the one thing that would make you unclean. But in the process, you are taking in this whole other thing so much bigger that is making you more unclean than that ever would. Your heart is wrong. And because your heart is wrong, it's even worse than what you're trying to guard against. For us to hear these words and then think through, where are we with this? Yes, it's, it's good to be generous financially to the church and to causes. But are our hearts in it? Is it simply an obligation? You do your checks, maybe you do it online, maybe you do it through QuickBooks or something like that, and you click the button, and that button... It makes the sound when it pays a check, doesn't it? I know QuickBooks does. Bing! And you're done. Obligation fulfilled. Church gets a check. I took care of it. Good. On to the next thing. Where's our heart in that? And I'm not, I'm not, certainly not condemning that sort of thing. We should at times give even when there are other things going on that may take of our time and our energy and our mind and our, all that other sort of stuff. But how do we see these sorts of things? That's the important stuff. Do we simply see the dollar signs when we give? How do we think about engaging in these other things that Jesus mentions? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
When we give to a cause or to the church, is it given at an arm's length? Here, here you go, you take care of what's next. Or do we engage in the ministry, engage in what God is doing, engage in justice, mercy, faithfulness with the organizations that we might be giving to? Are you involved? Do you understand the story? Do you, are you listening to what it is that they're doing and praying even into the things that they're telling you that are going on? Do you hear here at the river when you give your money here that there are things that God is doing and then are you engaged in that or is it at an arm's length? Okay, I gave, fulfilled my obligation. Done, check, move on. Giving is good, but giving and serving in love is better. When you and I engage in the kingdom stuff, we're not just giving to the kingdom and putting it at the arm's length and giving to it and saying, okay, what happens next? Okay, whatever, I'll let you do it. But we're also engaged in the heart work of being of seeing justice, mercy, and faithfulness not just go out through the ministries we support, but through us. We're involved in those things that God might be doing there and we, we see it. We see it and we engage in it. Here's what I mean. I want you to see things a little bit differently when you give of your tithes and offerings. Especially when you think about giving them to the river. And here's, here, I want to tell you about last Tuesday night. Last Tuesday night was a, a team meeting. We have seven teams that function here at the river providing leadership in many different areas. I've shared some of that with you before. We have an outreach kingdom causes and mission group that thinks about how we serve outside of the river community and different organizations both internationally, nationally, and locally. We have a group of people who are working on um, benevolence and generosity and giving. And they're thinking about how we give to these, uh, how we can give to those who have needs and engage with them in relationship that, Lord willing, we see transformation. We have a group that's working on hospitality and care. A group that thinks about when people engage with us at the river, what sort of hearts are they coming in contact with and how can we create a better environment for people to see Jesus when they engage with us and then when there's needs within this community, how do we care for each other? We have a group of people who are thinking about our children and youth. How do we think about loving them, serving them, developing ministries that speak to their hearts so they can learn about Jesus? We have a team for prayer and worship that's thinking about the prayer environment here at the river, what worship looks like, what the preaching looks like, and how we develop these things in a way which grows the work of the kingdom. We have an administrative team who deals with a lot of the particulars. We have a team that thinks about leadership development and discipleship. Now, you can imagine with seven teams, there's about 50 people in the room. We have our team meetings, and then we come together as a whole group afterwards, and we hear what God is doing. And I'll tell you, that's a fun time. Why? Because I hear what teams are talking about. 
I heard Travis Lem come out of the missions team with some excitement to share the stories of what God is doing through lots of our missionaries and how can we support them more and grow our missionary support in a way which God's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, goes out in new things. I heard Mario Perez stand up from our children and youth team, excited about what God is doing in the children and youth, but wanting to see more and developing more things for ministry here, wanting to see more kids come into relationship with Christ. I heard from this team and that team where we see God doing things and we want to see more. We want to develop more. We want to be engaged more. We want to grow more. When you give to the church, you're not giving to make sure that I have a solid paycheck. You're not giving to the church to make sure the lights are on. You're not giving to the church to make sure that the power is here. Those are all things that sort of come of it, but you're giving to the church to equip Travis and Mario. You're giving to the church to equip our, our benevolence and care ministry, our benevolence and care ministries to engage with people in deeper, more meaningful ways. We're wanting to see the kingdom grow. We're wanting to see justice, mercy, and faithfulness grow in this community in such a way that whenever people engage here, they see Jesus. And I want you to see giving the bing of QuickBooks as an opportunity for you to equip Travis and Mario and all the other teams to see justice, mercy, and faithfulness grow. I want you to be inspired by these great people with incredible gifts who see opportunity and are developing things we can be a part of. And maybe it's here at the church But maybe there's other places that you give to. I want you to know what's going on in those places that you can engage with them, pray for them, support them, understand what God is doing there. It's not just the obligation. Frankly, that's a Valentine card, a bracelet, flowers, and chocolates given out of obligation. Give it a heart. Heart to give. Now, we look back at our text and we see that Jesus is not telling the Pharisees. He's not saying neglect giving. He's not telling them to do it. In fact, he uses these words to say this. He says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. What he's calling them to is engage with giving, engage with ministry with your heart. Be engaged in activities of justice and mercy and faithfulness and love to the people who are around you. Do that. And then the blessing of your dill, your cumin. All those things, that's just, that's bonus. Then it's coming out of a right heart, a right heart of gratitude for what I've done for you. And then he gives those words of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And I hope that as soon as we read those words, we have to ask the question, well, then if he's instructing them that that's something they need to be involved in, how do I get involved in that? Turn over Matthew 25. 
Matthew 25, 31 through 46. I'm not going to read the whole portion of the text. I'm actually just going to read the first half of that. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with them, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as shepherds separate separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, come, you are, who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. Kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did, For one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Jesus is calling the Pharisees to engage their heart in those around them who need these things. Be involved in the relationship that I give you opportunity to engage in. Give you an opportunity to go and seek out those places where my justice, my mercy, and my faithfulness are needed in this world. Go engage in those places. Why? Because when you do, you engage with me. You meet me. You see me, and I know that your heart is mine. And to me, that's a fragrant offering. That smells real good. I, I love when you give with a heart that engages in seeing me in the world around you in places where I call you to work. Be here, I'm there. Be here, I'm there. Come and find me. Seek me. I will show myself to you. Matthew 25, verse 40, it's about relationship. Christ doesn't want the Pharisees' spices. He wants their hearts. He doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. Because when your heart is fully and completely the Lord's, then you can't give enough, right? You can't give enough because your heart realizes without Christ, I have no grace. Without God, I have no encouragement. Without the Holy Spirit, I have no hope. Without him, I have only death. And because I have received all of that from him, I can never outgive what he has already given to me. A right heart changes how we give. We don't do it to hear the bing and call it a check mark done. We give so that we can say to God, you have been so good to me and I want to see your justice, mercy, faithfulness, grace, love, and hope grow. And I want to be a part of that. When we're being real with our generosity, our donations may or may not change. 
You may not change a single dollar figure that you give if a heart is changed. There may be the exact same checks going to the exact same places, the exact same donation when you come to church on Sunday. Nothing of that may change. It may. It may. You may grow. You may give more. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But our hearts change. And we begin to see giving of our finances and our time not just as an obligation to fulfill, but as another way to show love and gratitude to Christ and those he's placed in our lives to serve. If I treat Valentine's Day the way that I described before, my heart's not in it. And when we live into a giving out of obligation and necessity because it's what we're commanded to do, our heart's not in it. And God wants our hearts. Engaging our hearts means we say say to the Lord, this is all yours anyway. And you have given me so much, I can never give back enough to you. And it's not just finances. It's time. It's energy. It's effort. It's where we invest ourselves and our lives. And as we give to others, we show them Christ-transformed hearts. Where do they see it? They see it in us. And when they see Christ-transformed hearts, they see more Jesus. This is an opportunity for us to show the world Jesus. And yes, it has a sum A dollar sign attached to it sometimes. But how much could we give back to God to pay for what he's given to us? There's not enough money in the world. I, uh, my father-in-law, um, used to work for an organization called Christian Reformed Home Missions. Christian Reformed Home Missions is something through our denomination that, um, we have a desire to see churches grow and plant churches in new communities and plant churches in urban areas and rural areas and plant multi-ethnic churches and lots of different things like that. It's a ministry that has been going for a long time and a lot of things have have come from that. They have uh, had a relationship with the River Church at various times over the last hundred years in some pretty big ways and churches have been planted out of that. Well, you can imagine with a ministry like this that you need to do something, it's, it's actually a bad word sometimes in our society, called development. Development is one of those things where they go out and they solicit donations, right? You know what that looks like. Someone comes to you and they say to you either through a dinner or through a mailing in the mail or sometimes they go and visit you. If you're high on their list, usually they come and visit you and sit at your kitchen table and they say, this is what's going on in our ministry and we need money in order to grow it. Well, my father-in-law, working with home missions, that was part of his job, and he was out here in California visiting Kristen and I, and he asked me one time, would you like to go on a visit like that? And I really didn't. But he's my father-in-law, and I'm married to his daughter, who I like the fact that she likes me, and if I don't say yes, then I'm probably going to be in some trouble, so, oh, sure, that'll be great. So we go, and this person that we were going to visit was, and often, it's sad that they use these words, but it's true, in development, he was a heavy hitter. He was one of those people who gave a lot of money 
to organizations and to ministries. And he gave a lot of money to home missions over the years. And so here's how these things work. If you've never been on one, some of you have, you know what it looks like. The person comes in, you do the meet and greet, you find out about each other's families. Maybe that's 15, 20 minutes long. This was a Dutch household, so you have to have very, very small cups of coffee and uh, high-fat content pastries, because that's what you do. And you find out what's going on and blah, 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 blah. And then you get to the meat and potatoes of the meeting, which is about 20 minutes long. My father-in-law shared the vision for ministry that home missions had and some new things that were going on that they needed money for. And he made a very specific request at the end of it. It was a five-figure request for funds. Significant. And this person, in some ways, sort of laughed. They laughed at the end of the conversation. And here's why they laughed. They said, well, that's great and everything, John. John's my father-in-law. That's great and everything, John. But that's actually only half of the check that I sent two days ago to home missions. So this person had been more generous even than what my father-in-law was expecting. And of course, my father-in-law's like, yay, good, ah, thank you so much, and God be praised. And so they have to go for a walk because he says, I have to show you one other thing. He's showing my father-in-law, and he's got to show him something back in his study or something like that. So I'm left alone in the kitchen. And so you do what you do when, you, when you're left alone in the kitchen, especially, I think it was about 15, 20 minutes. You get bored and you can only look and mess around with your coffee so long. So you stand up. And if you want to see what's going on in someone's life, life, where do you go in a kitchen? There's two places. You can go to their calendar or you can go to their refrigerator. Because we all put the stuff up on the refrigerator, right? I don't know about you, I put, we put pictures up on the refrigerator, we put events coming up on the refrigerator, we put things that we're involved, we put checklists of things going on on the refrigerator door so we can be reminded because I like going to the refrigerator. So I get to the refrigerator and I'm looking at it, I'm saying they're looking at it. And I'm struck by a couple things. First of all, there's cards all over the refrigerator, thank you cards. There's this card from this ministry. Open it up. Thank you for your donation. I just saw what he gave to this, to home missions. What did he give to them? I don't know. But he gave something. There's another card from this ministry. There's another card from this institution. There's another card from this church. There's another card from this missionary. All thank you cards. Thank you for your donation. Thank you for your faithfulness. All handwritten, including presidents of some of the institutions. If you know how development works, presidents sign cards to who? Heavy hitters. But then, over here, checklist. This is not a grocery list. It's prayer requests. And I start to look at the prayer requests. And the prayer requests... Pray for this missionary, blah, 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 blah. This is what's going on. Pray for this institution, change coming up. Pray for this organization, they're dealing with some challenges right now. All these different things, the list had to have been 15, 20 long. All these prayer requests, not for personal thing. This guy had like 30 grandkids. This prayer request list had none of their names on it. It was about all the ministries. And then finally, there's a calendar. And it's a three-month calendar. One that looks three months ahead. And I look on it for just a moment. And there is a trip to Costa Rica to go see blah, blah, blah. Missionary there. Trip to 
da-da-da-da, for the fundraising dinner. That place is three states away. That's a whole lot of work to get there. Trip here. There for a day. Volunteer here. Three months, I see probably seven different activities that this family is involved in, engaging in the ministry that God has called them to support. I've already heard what he's given of his finances. And here on his door, I see him give his heart. This is what it means to not neglect the former, but more fully engage in the latter. Go out. Yes, give. But go. Engage your heart so that you and I, our justice, our mercy, and our faithfulness might grow. And Jesus might be able to say to us, when you did these things, For the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you met me. You met me. Let's pray together. Father, you call us to engage hearts not of obligation, but of gratitude. You call us, Father, not to check things off the list, make sure we get it right, make sure we have the decimal place in the right place, but instead, Lord, you call us to have hearts in the right space. Hearts that, Lord, want to engage more deeply with you, see your kingdom grow, see your justice flow, see your mercy overwhelm, see your faithfulness proclaimed. Father, lead us to places where we can be engaged in that with hearts that don't hear the sound of an obligation fulfilled, but hear the sound of your joy in the hearts of others as we engage in love with them and they see you. They see you in us. We want more people to see you in us as we give back to you just a portion, just a small little bit, a little slice of what you've given already to us. We pray these things in Jesus. Amen.